Good morning again. Good to see all you guys. I'm excited to spend the next uh, couple hours talking about God with us. Yes, I'm just kidding. I know. Just sometimes I have to make sure you're paying attention. You know, you guys have, you're watching the Olympics. Is, is it ever sort of discouraging to know your job is not going to be an Olympic sport ever? Because it's just not that interesting to watch, you know. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot of gold medalists out there. I appreciate you guys. You're all good at what you do. Um, I am excited to talk today about our expectations of life with God. So we've been talking that, that God is pursuing us. God wants a relationship with us. And he pursued that all the way to the cross, which is getting a little ahead of ourselves in this series. But God, God is, is chasing you down because he created you to be with him. And what, what do you think that would look like if you let him catch you? right? Some of, some of us, we, we did that a long time ago. We're like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. I, I want to be with God. What are our expectations of life with God? As human beings, we're not, we're not great at setting expectations. Sometimes you set your expectations too high and you're disappointed, right? You had that experience? Uh, my wife and I, before we had kids, went to New York City uh, for a weekend, probably went to see the Braves play uh, in New York is what we were doing. And uh, so we, we uh, booked a hotel room in Manhattan right off of uh, Central Park. And, um, you know, we had stayed in like Holiday Inns before. And so we knew like hotel rooms, you pay this much and this is where you get. So for what we paid for our room in Manhattan, we thought this is going to be an amazing hotel. We're so excited because uh, we really splurged. It was like an anniversary trip or something. We thought this is going to be a, you know, a big, like nice room and big hotel. And uh, we got there and I... I don't think the door even opened all the way. I think it hit the bed uh, before it opened all the way. The room was so small. There was just a, a little path that you could walk around the bed and there was a tiny little bathroom. And uh, that was what we got for paying four times you know, what we would have paid for a Holiday Inn. Uh, so our expectations were up here. And then we were like, oh, that's, this is not what we thought it was gonna be. Um, but on the other side, sometimes we have low expectations and then we're pleasantly surprised. Is that, is that you? Some, some people you're like, I would rather be pleasantly surprised than disappointed. So you just kind of set the bar low. Um, so the first time we went to uh, Bongi's, a restaurant over in Perkinsville, uh, we pulled in the parking lot and we thought, all right, this is Greasy Spoon Diner. We're excited. We'll, we'll go in and have some, you know, greasy bacon and eggs or, or uh, maybe it was barbecue. It's hard to tell from the outside what you're getting into. And then you get in there and you look at the menu on the wall and you're like, holy cow, these are like five-star dishes on, on this menu. And you get the food and it's five-star food. And you're like, this is not what I thought I was getting into when I pulled into the parking lot, right? So you had low expectations and then, and then you're pleasantly surprised. So what are your expectations for life with God? Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever thought, man, I thought life with God would be like this, but my life is kind of like this, and you're disappointed? Or maybe, maybe you've had low expectations, and God has surprised you continually with peace and joy and purpose. Today, I, I want us to explore that a little further and find out what, what life with God is like, especially during difficult times of life, when we're experiencing pain or suffering or grief or injustice. What, what is, is God with us in those times? And if so, what is, what is it like? So we're gonna go back to Genesis and to our covenant family. If you remember, we talked last week that God established a covenant with a man named Abraham because God is restoring this relationship that he created human beings for, right? So he created Adam and Eve to have this with God life in the garden. Everything was great. And then they chose to be kings of their own lives and decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And in that choice, they lost witness. They lost this relationship with God. 
And God began to pursue restoration of that relationship. And so Abraham is chosen as someone that God says, I'm gonna be with you and through you and your descendants, you're, you're, gonna, have, you're gonna have a crazy number of descendants and through you and your descendants, you're gonna show the rest of the world what it looks like to be in relationship with me. And so in Genesis chapter 42, we come to a man named Jacob who is Abraham's grandson, And God has already renewed this covenant with Jacob. He came to him and he said, hey, just like your grandfather, Abraham, I am making a promise. I am with you. I'm gonna be for you. I'm gonna bless you. And through you and your descendants, I am gonna bless the entire world. But in Genesis 42, Jacob and his family are not being blessed. In fact, they're in the middle of a famine. And uh, Jacob looks at his sons. He's got 12 sons. And he looks at his 11 sons circle back to that. And he says, if you guys don't go find some food, we're all going to die. That, that's, that's what famine is like. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced famine. The closest we get is when like a meeting runs long and we miss lunch and we're like, what am I going to do? I didn't get lunch. I'm going to starve to death, right? That's usually the closest we get. Um, but for, for people all over the world, this still happens where there's a drought and it affects the food supply and there's, there's just no food. And so you've got starvation is, is a number one possibility, but then you've got a whole society of people asking this question, how far will I go to feed my family? Like, what, what will I do? What rules will I bend or break to feed my children? Can you imagine an entire society asking that question on a daily basis, waking up every morning, what am I gonna have to do to feed my family? That's, that's a terrifying situation for everyone to be in. So you've got starvation and you've got society sort of breaking down as people cross lines and do whatever it takes to feed their kids. This is the situation that Jacob finds himself in. And Jacob is saying, guys, you, you have got to go find some food or we're all gonna die. And we're kind of going, hang on a second. This is, this is the covenant people. This is the grandson of Abraham that God, God told him, your, your descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And right now there's like 70 of them all told with kids and grandkids. We're like, that's not, that's not stars in the sky numerous. That's just, that's 70 people. Isn't God gonna keep his promise? Isn't he gonna take care of this family? Some of you know the rest of the story. Just pretend like you don't for now. We're gonna pretend like you don't know this story. And so how is God gonna solve this? He has to keep his promise. He has to provide for Jacob and his family. How's he gonna do it? Well, he's God, so he's got a lot of options, right? He could just do the fish and loaves thing. You remember that from the New Testament where he takes his, you know, five loaves of bread and two fish and he makes it enough to feed 5,000. He could do this for Jacob's family. He could take a little bit of grain and a little bit of fish or something and he could turn it into years worth of food. That's, that's a possibility, that's a miracle. And, and there's a lot of miracles that we couldn't even imagine that God could use to help this family survive this really difficult time. But he doesn't actually use a miracle. In fact, he's gonna work through someone else to bring about salvation and rescue for this family. And it's a very unlikely person. In fact, it's one of Jacob's sons. And when we meet him in Genesis 38, he is a, uh, we're gonna call it, he's, he's a, maybe an arrogant teenager is kind of what we meet Uh, when we first come across Joseph. And he's got good reason to be arrogant because his father has told him his whole life, you're special, buddy. In fact, you're more special. It's not just like all of my kids are special. No, you are actually the favorite, right? Do you guys have that in your family? Do you know like who's the favorite? Like you have a lot of siblings and you're like, okay, we know who the favorite is, right? Um, And all the parents are always gonna say, I don't have favorites, but the kids know. The kids are like, yeah, we know. I mean, we know who the favorite is. 
this was really obvious in Jacob's family. Out of his 12 sons, he picked Joseph and he said, I actually love you more than all the other kids. Can you imagine your parents saying that? And he gives him this special coat that kind of sets him out above the the rest of his brothers. And this kind of goes to Joseph's head and he he does some things that kind of indicate some arrogance and and like animosity. He he starts tattling on his brothers. You know, if his brothers aren't doing things right as they're out doing their work in the fields, he runs back and he says, dad, you're not gonna guess what, you know, Reuben and Simeon and the guys are all up to. They're they're out there, they're they're just making a mess of it, right? How popular is he gonna be with his brothers doing that? You guys know what tattletaling does in your family, right? It's, it's time to throw hands. We're gonna get mad now because you're not supposed to do that, right? And so uh, then he has a couple dreams. He has some really strange dreams uh, where he, he dreams that his entire family bows down and worships him. So all of his brothers, like on their knees, worshiping him, oh, Joseph, you're the greatest, and also his mother and father, bowing down and worshiping. Oh, Joseph, you're the greatest, you're the best. And it's not bad enough that he had the dream. He had to go and tell people he had the dream. And this is a problem, first of all, because um, typically, this is just a little side, free advice. People don't like to listen to your dreams. It's really difficult to be interested in someone else's dream because you don't understand what they're saying and it's just hard. But in addition to that, in this culture, it is extremely disrespectful what Joseph does. In this culture, it's, it's a family-oriented culture. Our culture here in 2021 USA is individualistic. The highest value is you be you and express that however you want to. But in the ancient Near East and even in the East today, the value is family. Like the most important thing is we take care of our family. And so there was a, there was a strict hierarchy to that and structure. And it was the, the, the dad, uh, the patriarch was like, we, we respect him. He, he gets our respect no matter what. He gets our honor, our obedience, our submission, no matter what. And we take care of each other. And for the young, the 11th out of 12 brothers to stand up and go, you know what? Someday I, I'm pretty sure you guys are all gonna worship me was so disrespectful that even the second time he tells this dream, his father's like, what are you doing, man? Like, you, don't, you shouldn't even be saying this. Okay, you had the dream, fine, but you shouldn't be saying this because dreams were sort of taken as uh, prophetic at times uh, in this culture. And so people would say, well, you must think this is actually gonna happen. So the brothers decide, we know how to keep this from happening. We can guarantee, we know a way to guarantee that we never bow down and serve Joseph. We'll just kill him. That's their solution. They're like, this guy is so annoying. He's been tattling on us. He's dad's favorite. And now he thinks we're all gonna worship him. Not happening. We're just gonna kill him. And so they, they come together, they get this plot together and they're gonna, they're gonna kill uh, their younger brother. And finally, the oldest guy stands up and he says, guys, we can't, we can't kill him, all right? I know we all want to, but we can't kill him. So let's, let's just sell him into slavery. So that's what they do. Uh, They sell him and then they tell their dad that he died, that he got eaten by a wild animal. So Jacob thinks his son is dead. Joseph is now a slave and he ends up in Egypt. Egypt is the largest, most powerful nation on the planet at this time. And Joseph is a slave in the land of Egypt. He goes from being the favorite son of a wealthy man to a slave in the home of a man named Potiphar, who is a military leader in Egypt. And this is where we're gonna pick up. We're gonna read a couple verses here. In Genesis 39-2, we... We see where Joseph is at. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So he's fallen all the way from up here to way down here and we read that God is with him. 
And don't you wanna ask the question, where was God when he was being sold into slavery? Like, wasn't God with him then? And this is where our expectations of what life with God is supposed to look like. It seems like, the expectation seems like it should be, if God was with him, he wouldn't have been rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery. But we find that as he he finds himself in slavery in Egypt, God is with him. And God starts to bless Joseph. He gives him favor in the sight of his master and his master raises him up to be uh, an authority in the household as a slave. Well, he catches the eye of his boss's wife and she tries to seduce him and Joseph says no. And so she accuses him of attempted rape and Potiphar, the the husband, the boss, gets furious with Joseph, probably should have had him executed. Like he was well within his rights to have Joseph executed for this accusation, but instead he has him thrown in prison. And we're not talking about prison like, you know, three square meals a day and a bed to sleep on. And prison's a terrible place, by the way, but prison today versus prison 3,000 years ago, I mean, they didn't have like the humanitarian, you know, human rights kind of stuff that we do. Um, And it was just awful. So we, we thought he had fallen as far as he could go. He's a slave, but then he's a slave who sort of gets elevated. And now he's a, he's a prisoner. And, and it's like for life, like there's no opportunity for Joseph to think he's ever going to get out of prison. So now he's in prison. We come to verse 21. And what do we find when Joseph's in prison? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And you're like, okay, great. God is God is blessing him while he's in prison, but where was God when he was being falsely accused of this crime? Where was God then? Was God not with him then? But now that he's in prison, we read that God is with him. We have to start asking some questions. Is our expectation that life with God is going to give us smooth circumstances in life? What do we see in Joseph's story? We, we see that he was, he was favored. He, he grew up, you know, sort of like a spoiled child. Favorite son of a wealthy man. Was God with him then? And, and then we see that he, he falls very far from that to slave status. And then even further to that, to a slave in prison status. And we read that God is with him. We go, well, this doesn't... This doesn't fit with our expectation of what life with God should look like. Shouldn't life with God mean the circumstances of my life are are pretty good? Like, shouldn't I get to live sort of a comfortable and, you know, joyful and and everything, people like me and, and I get to, you know, have a lot of freedom and isn't that what life with God should be like? But then we see Joseph here and it's in his lowest, worst moments that we read that God is with him. So what is God doing while he's with Joseph? Is he just passively kind of there watching Joseph suffer or is he doing something in Joseph? I believe that God is changing Joseph during this time. There's a lot of indication that when Joseph was younger, before he's uh, sold by his brothers, that he's He's, he's kind of got an ego. He, he's, he does some things that seem really prideful and even disrespectful to his parents and his brothers. But now that he's in prison the, and, and in his slavery, the people who are over him start to notice different things. They start to see a man of integrity and, and character. And, and it seems like God is changing Joseph in the midst of all this. And Joseph clearly grows in humility. 
He clearly grows in patience. And then Joseph begins to see a bigger picture of what God is doing, not just in his life, but in the lives of the people all around him. I believe this is what God does in us or what he's able to do, that God's presence with us in our lowest moments should be shaping us. He's not just passively present, putting an arm around us and going, you know, I'm really sorry this is happening. I think he does that as well. In fact, there are so many Psalms that, that say when we're hurting, when we're suffering, it's good and right to cry out, to lament. We call these Psalms laments because it's a crying out to God that this is not right and I'm hurting and God is there with us in our lament. But I, I don't think that's the limit of what God's presence does. I think he also begins to shape us and change us. And I think what many of us experience during our times of suffering and justice and grief is growth in humility and patience, and then eventually a bigger picture of what God is doing, not just in our lives, but in the world around us. See, I think what Joseph figured out is that God's presence was for him, but it wasn't always about him. God's presence was for him, but it wasn't always about him. So we left him in prison. God is with him. He's, he's, he's now in charge of most of the prison because he's, he's now a man of integrity and character, but he, he's forgotten about there for a few years. Uh, finally, he gets his big chance and, and he gets brought out of prison because the, Pharaoh has these dreams and nobody can interpret them except this, this guy named Joseph who seems to have this with God life that allows him to interpret dreams. So he interprets these dreams. The, the end result is there's gonna be a famine coming down the road and Joseph has some ideas about how to prepare for that. So Pharaoh says, all right, you're in charge, buddy. Get us there, make, make it happen. Make it so that when the famine comes, uh, we're gonna be okay. And Joseph becomes a man of power and authority in the most powerful nation on the planet. He's elevated to that position. So we come to Jacob in chapter 42, when he's looking at his 11 sons, and he says, you guys have got to go find some food or we're all gonna die. Where do they go? They go to Egypt and they go to Joseph. And Joseph is there, put in a position by God to rescue his own family from starvation. It's an incredible story how he, he provides their food for them uh, for free, and he ultimately brings the whole family, all 70 of them, down to the land of Egypt and provides land for them so that they can live in a place where they have access to food and it's safe. And at the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, Jacob and his family, they've all been living in Egypt, and Jacob uh, dies. And the brothers are thinking, probably the only reason Joseph hasn't had us all killed is because of our father. And now that our father's dead, we might actually see this revenge come out uh, of Joseph you know, giving us what we deserve for selling him into slavery to begin with. So they go to Joseph and they, they say, look, uh, dad's, dad's gone, please don't kill us. <laughs> and here's, here's what Joseph says, uh, Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph has gotten to a point in his life where he's able to look back and he's able to see this bigger picture of what God was doing. And he's able to say, God was with me, but even when God was with me, it wasn't about me. It was about something much bigger that God was doing in the world. Not just to save and rescue my family, but to save thousands of people from the famine. 
That God's presence with Joseph, shaping him into a man who was growing in humility and patience, allowed God to partner with Joseph to rescue a lot of people from the famine. Now, there's a big part of me that, that wants to ask, like, why couldn't God have just performed a miracle to end the famine and provide for Jacob's family? Could he not have done that? Sure, of course. Like, he could have, and there were moments where he did that. But in this case, what does he choose to do? He picks out this arrogant teenager and says, you and me, we're gonna save the world. And he shapes him into a man of character and integrity. And he invites Joseph into this incredible story where Joseph gets to be with God as God does something for others. It's an amazing place for Joseph to be. And in the middle of all that, he experienced some of the darkest moments of his life. What a great perspective for him to be able to land there. I think you and I could benefit from a bigger perspective of what God is doing in our lives, particularly when we're going through hard times. What happens when we experience difficulty is our world shrinks, doesn't it? When something bad happens in our lives, a job loss, an illness, a broken relationships, our world just shrinks and everything becomes about my hurt and my pain. And in those moments, I think the laments are very appropriate. It's, I think God cares about us. I know he does. In those moments, it's appropriate to cry out to God and say, this, this isn't right, this hurts and I'm broken. And he is with us in that. But I think he's not that's not all he's doing. That he's not limited by just being able to put an arm around you and say, I'm here, I'm with you. I think he also shapes us in that moment. So it's crucial for us when, when we start to get focused in on, on that, that the goal is to be able to step back soon. Because if we're focused just on our own selves and our own pain, we might miss what God is, is doing in our family around us. Have you ever felt like you're just, you're just distant from your family because you've been wrapped up in some of your own stuff for a while? And we start to miss what God is doing in our family. But then maybe, maybe we focus in so much on our family because of pain and hardship that we start to miss, we, we miss what God is doing in the community around us, in our church family or in the community. We miss that because we've been zeroed in our, on our own pain and suffering for so long. And maybe we as a country, Christians in America, get, get so zeroed in on what God is doing here that we, we miss what God is doing in other places around the world and that God is active and pursuing people all over this planet. And it's not just about what's happening here. It's not just about what's happening to me. In fact, what, what's happening to me may be God shaping me so that I can be a part of what he wants to do for others. And when we can step back and get that bigger picture, we get to participate in a story like Joseph did where he got to be a part of the salvation of many because he allowed God to shape him. God's presence with Joseph was for him, but it wasn't just about him. And that presence is an incredible gift. In fact, if, if we fast forward to Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He rises from the dead and then he begins to interact with his disciples and prepare them to take on this mission. So in Matthew chapter 28, we come to his last speech to his disciples and he gives them this incredible mission. He says, you guys are gonna go change the world. Go into all the world, make disciples of every nation. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So he lays this huge mission out on them. 
He says, I'm gonna leave, but you guys got this. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. You're gonna be fine. And it's gonna be costly. In fact, we know that these disciples, at least all but one of them, most likely were executed for fulfilling this mission. In taking on the job that Jesus gives them in this moment, it leads to their death. It's gonna be full of pain and hardship and grief and injustice. And I wonder if Jesus you know, was writing this speech and he sat down and he, he wondered like, how can I end this? What can I put at the end of this, this great commission that will offer them the most encouragement, the most hope? And how does he end it? You guys are gonna go change the world. Here's the mission. It's going to kill you, but it'll be okay. How does he end it? And I am with you. I'm with you always to the very end. That was Jesus's last words on earth to these guys was this promise of his presence. What a gift, what a promise that even though you guys are gonna go through some really difficult things, I'm gonna be right there in the middle of it with you. And my presence will be for you, but it may not be about you. In fact, God's presence with us and Jesus's presence with the disciples wasn't about them. It was about getting the church started and getting it launched and getting the gospel spread to the corners of the world. And it's still about that today. God's presence with us is not just for us. It, it, it's, it's not just about us. It's about what God is doing to spread the gospel all over the planet, starting in your home, and in your neighborhood, and in your workplace, and in your school, and in our community, in our nation, and in Jamaica, and Mexico, and India, to the ends of the earth. You're a part of that. Isn't that crazy? Don't you just think like, you know, it's probably not, I'm probably not a part of it. I mean, there's people who are a lot, you know, holier than me, or smarter than me, or whatever. Those people are a part of it. But God picked an arrogant teenager out of the Middle East and said, I'm gonna use you. We're gonna to partner together. We're gonna to save a lot of people. If he can use Joseph, he can use me and you. I know that pain comes and goes. And maybe you're in a season where you're experiencing pain, grief, injustice of some kind. And I want you to know God is with you. He's with you to comfort you, uh, to put his arm around you through the Holy Spirit and let you know he's never gonna leave you. But I also believe he is shaping you in this time. He is leading you to greater humility and greater patience and ultimately to a bigger perspective of what he's doing in the world around you. So I just wanna close with a prayer for you. If you're, if you're going through difficult times, and maybe you're not, maybe this is a season where you're, uh, things are going pretty good for you. Um, you're, you're finding a lot of peace and joy is easy to come by, um, but you probably know people that are struggling. And, and so I just wanna pray for, for you if you're hurting or for uh, you who have friends and loved ones who are hurting, that we would acknowledge the presence of God and what an incredible gift that is and what God is doing in us and through us in our times of difficulty. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your presence. It's, it's all we need. We're so grateful that you are willing to work in us, to shape us and change us in our times of hardship, that you comfort us and you care for us, but you also conform us to the image of Christ. And God, we know that the reason why you do that 
is so we can be a testimony, salt and light to the people around us. So we pray that you help us to get that perspective, to grow in our understanding of what you're doing around us. And as you do that in us and through us, God, would you bring more people to your son? Would more and more people come to know and understand and believe the love of Jesus that changes everything? More people in your kingdom, God, that's what we want. And we pray that you would do that through us, even in our times of difficulty because of your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close, I just want to encourage you to, to continue to think and pray through this. What, what are your expectations of life with God? And does it match up with what we see, how God is with people in Scripture? That it doesn't always mean their circumstances are great, but it means that his presence makes the difference. And maybe think about what is God doing in your life? Uh, I met uh, a man a month or so ago named Viani. He's from Indonesia. And um, Viani uh, told me a story about um, what happened to him last year. In May of 2020, uh, he, he wasn't feeling well. He went um, to the emergency room to get checked out. They tested him. He had COVID. And they uh, said, you have to stay here. You can't leave. And they put him in a hospital room. He's 64. And they said, sir, based on our, what we know at this time and your age and your health, we don't think you're ever, you're ever going to leave this hospital. And we're sorry to tell you that your family cannot come and be with you. And he gets all of this news in a matter of an hour. And he's sitting there in this hospital room, terrified of calling his wife. He doesn't even know what to say. And he's... He starts, he was laughing about it at the time he was telling me this just last month. Uh, and he, he says, I, I started making a list of all my sins that I didn't think I had been forgiven for and a list of people I needed to call and ask for forgiveness. And he made that, he said, just pages and pages, he made this list of his, of his sins. I'm like, Viana, you can't, like you're a good, there's no way you've got that many sins. But anyway, and he eventually, five hours later, he, call, he finally calls his wife and he tells her what's going on and, and he starts to confess his sins to her. And she's like, no, no you're, I'm holding nothing against you. I, I've forgiven you for everything. We're, we're, we're good. Let's, let's talk about something else. So she began, they begin to talk about his relationship with God and his confidence that God has forgiven him and about what's gonna happen to him when he dies. And he spends some time just thinking about, do I really believe that what comes next is better? Do I really believe that God has something good for me? Do I really trust that he is with me? Ultimately, because I'm telling you this story, Vianney got well and went home. And he told me that for the last year, he has lived as a completely different person. In fact, the reason he and I met is because we were in a Bible class together um, through Wheaton College because Vianney decided, you know, there's a lot of Americans who go to Indonesia, his home country, to share the gospel and they struggle because they don't speak the language. He says, I speak the language. I should go and teach people in Indonesia, but I don't know enough. So he's in a master's program for biblical studies so he can go back to Indonesia and share the gospel with people in their own language. He is convinced that, what, that God was with him in his time of pain and suffering and shaped him into someone who can now be used to share the gospel with others. If God can do that with him, why not with you? Why not with me? So I just wanna encourage you, God is with you and he is doing stuff as he's with you. He's not just passively watching, but he's involved in shaping you. And where does that perspective lead us? 
So I encourage you to, to think and pray through that as we close. If you want to stand, we're going to sing this song. And if, if you have something that, that's on your heart and mind you want to reach out, we would love for you to connect with our staff or elders. Um, you can do that through this text um, program or just talk to us out in the hallway. We'd love to talk to you.